Turning this morning in the Word of God again to 1 Corinthians 13, not that we have already read it today, we were in Luke 7, but we have read it many times over the last number of weeks, and we're looking again at verse 4 through 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and commencing to read there at verse 4, charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. We're going to be looking at verse 6 today, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. And then, given the time of year that we're at, we'll be parking the series, and we will, God willing, resume it sometime in the new year, in the fairly early New Year. But 1 Corinthians 6, um, 13, and the verse 6 today. Let's bow together in prayer, seek the Lord's help for His Word today. Heavenly Father, we come to Thee, we thank Thee for the truth of God. Non-negotiable, we know it is. Full of comfort, consolation, challenge, and correction. And we pray that as we come to Thy truth this morning, that as Thou hast been searching, our hearts, and giving us this perfect profile of love that we see in Christ, all of the features fulfilled ultimately by Him, but features to which we must aspire, and at which we must aim, that must be our targets in life as well. Lord, may there be challenge, may there be encouragement as well as we come to Thy truth this morning and keep us walking in the way that is profitable and pleasant and will be peaceable and will bring praise unto Thy great and Thy glorious name, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Many relationships are crippled or even crushed because of the past. One man said one day to a counselor, every time we have a discussion, my wife gets historical. The counselor said, but surely you don't mean historical, you mean hysterical. No, he said, I do mean historical. She brings up everything that I have ever done wrong, even though that's not what we are talking about at that time. Love understands it takes time to get over hurt. However, love also understands that for relationships to flourish, we need to learn to forgive. And so in the Bible we are taught, in Proverbs 19 to verse 11, for example, the discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over 
a transgression. I wonder how many times have we actually done that or even noticed that text in God's Word. Ephesians 4, the verse 31, 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, Paul says, and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now, there's no question about it. This kind of forgiveness taught in the Word of God does not come easily. Hurts, wound, and wounds, let's be real, take time to heal. A person, for example, who has been in a horrific car crash may have trouble getting back into a car, and whenever they do eventually get into a vehicle, they may be tensed up for quite some time, anticipating what has happened in the past could well be repeated again. A veteran who returns back from war needs to work through the nightmares and the memories of a violent time that he was endured. Steve Sudgeon, colonel in the U.S. Army Reserves, a psychiatrist in the Huntsman Mental Health Institute, has said the long-term effects of trauma are significant. Then he went on to say we have seen increases in homelessness among the U.S. veteran population, and this group has the highest suicide rate compared to any other in the population. Then again, a person who has been abused will have to really work to learn to trust anyone again. And that will be a long, long process. People who endure these kinds of trauma have to work through what happened. And in much the same way, when we are wounded in a relationship, we will need time to heal from those wounds. Forgiveness is learning to function normally again within the confines of that relationship in spite of the wounds of the past. Now, when you and I forgive someone, we don't forget that something happened. We decide rather not to allow what has happened to affect us, dominate us in the present. And so we are working through the hurt to let it go. And the question, of course, and challenge is, are we keen and are we ready to do that very thing? Well, we're not. Naturally, we are not. It is only but natural to be expected that we will resist this, and our fists will be clenched, and our teeth will be greeting one against the other, even though we know it's better for us and for the relationship to forgive, but we don't want to be seen as weak. We don't want to be known as a pushover. We don't want the other person to get away with what they did, and so we are digging in our heels, and we are demanding justice. Our Lord tells us that we should be willing to forgive. Why? Because, because we have been forgiven. In Luke 7, verse 41 to 50, we read it this morning in Matthew 6 and the verse 15 as well. No matter what someone has done to us, we have done far worse to the Lord. He has forgiven us for all of that. And He is saying to us then, should we not extend forgiveness to each other? Forgiveness is an act of love. 
and an expression of grace. And even though a person deserves to be punished, love says, I will absorb the hurt and seek to restore and rebuild the relationship. Forgiveness is when we extend to another person the love that Jesus Christ has sent our way. There are a host of petty things that unravel relationships. And it's always been helpful to consider what has been called the judgment of charity. Now, usually, the judgment of charity, we will want it to operate in one direction and not in two. And here's what I mean. It's a natural human tendency that we would expect people around us to give us the benefit of the doubt when something happens. For example, when we are late, we want others to understand, well, that person was unavoidably delayed, and that's why he or she didn't make it on time today. When we say something hurtful, we want people to understand, well, you know what? He has had a bad day, and he didn't really mean what he said to me today. When we do something that stirs a problem for somebody else, we want them to give us a break and give us space because really we meant well when we strike out at someone we want people to take the time to understand why we reacted in the way that we did however while we like the judgment of charity coming our way working in our favor it's also a human tendency to assume the worst when we are dealing with the offenses of others We often don't accord them the same courtesy that we would like for ourselves. We believe they were late because they had no consideration for us. We believe someone snapped at us because they are insensitive. We assign the worst possible motives to a person and we conclude they meant to cause us maximum pain. We don't think. There's any reason to even consider a purpose behind someone flying off the handle, becoming angry. They hurt us, and that is all that matters. The challenge is to treat others the same way we want them to treat us. Quite simply, instead of choosing to attribute the worst possible motive to what someone else does, we should try to attribute to them the best motives. Give the benefit of the doubt. Exercise the judgment of charity with respect to them. Now, we do that with our own children most of the time. Somebody comes home and they tell us, you know, your child is attacking another child or other children, and we assume, well, something had to happen to provoke my child into that action. If our child is having problems with their exam marks at school, then naturally we'll gravitate to the position where the teacher mustn't be doing an effective job there and is shortchanging my child. That's why the results are so poor. If our child gets into trouble, we're concluding that they are being unfairly singled out. And we often show charity to the point of indulgence or even to the point of gullibility when we are defending those whom we love. If we should extend the judgment of charity to others, we would find ourselves offended less often. 
We'd be positive rather than negative. We'd be loving rather than suspicious. We would stop taking it personally when somebody else was having a bad day. One writer has said, to forgive someone is to display reverence. Forgiveness is not saying the one who hurt you was right. Forgiveness is stating that God is fair and that He will do what is right. Now, that's exactly the ground that we covered. In this ninth feature in the profile or the portrait of love that appears in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, charity suffereth long this kind, charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, hears the one, thinketh no evil. And we pointed out when Paul pulls in this word, he's bringing a word in from the vocabulary of an accountant. This is one that points to entering an item in a ledger so that you're writing it down, noting it here, it won't be forgotten. And that is exactly what so many people do. But one of the great arts in life is learning what to forgive. Love. We'll put away the hurts of the past instead of clinging to them. Love does not keep score. It forgives. Do we have a little black book that we keep on people? Carter around with us? Mental black book? Do we need to be forgiving people? Rather than refreshing our mind regarding the wrong that they have done. So far, we've looked at nine out of the 15 features that we have here in the profile of love. And we've seen that love is patient. Charity suffereth long is kind, is not jealous because it envieth not, is not proud, doesn't vaunt itself, is not conceited, the term puffed up here, is not rude, doth not behave itself unseemly, is not selfish, seeketh not her own, is not angry, not easily provoked, does not think evil, thinketh no evil, just mentioned there. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, the verse 6, we have this list of features continued. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Rejoiceth not in iniquity. So love does not delight in iniquity. The word iniquity simply means unrighteousness. It's a word that speaks of sin. So love, Paul is saying here, does not rejoice in sin. Now that certainly cuts across the grain of modern life. We know that bad news sells. That's why in our newspaper, if we want anything good and encouraging and uplifting, you'll not find it in page one or two or three or four or five. You'll maybe have to go to page 56 and you'll find it tucked away in some column there, some cheer me up good news story that will put that warm, fuzzy feeling into you, but all the rest of it, it's bad material. But that's why those tabloids sell so many copies. They feed people a constant diet of those who are wanting to hear all of the juicy gossip, the latest stuff about their favorite celebrities. In fact, really, when it comes down to it, we live in a world that glorifies evil today. Immorality 
is paraded as a way to fulfillment. The disposal of life in the womb through abortion and also in the nursing home by euthanasia is presented as a reasonable option, good for society. Health care, ridiculous as far as woman is concerned. That term is constantly used by those who are using an absolute euphemism to cover up the gross iniquity of that deed. In this world, glorifying evil as well, honesty and character are giving way to the idea that you do whatever you need to do to get whatever you want to be. That's utilitarianism. And in other words, you've got lying, you've got cheating, abusive behavior, and selfishness, and greed, and more. These are not only tolerated, but promoted and expected in the world today. I don't believe it's any coincidence that mass shootings and murders and knifings are on the rise. I don't think, again, it's an accident that suicide rates are increasing or that consumer debt is out of control. People have more things all around us, but here's the guarantee with the more things, they have less happiness. Why? Because they've come to love the evil and hate the good. Evil destroys, disorientates people. And therefore, Paul's saying, we should heal because true love is not like that. It turns its back on cheap gossip and unsubstantiated rumors. And even when the rumor turns out to be true, love takes no pleasure in the misfortunes of others. It takes no pleasure in wrongdoing. It is not glad about injustice. It is not happy when evil triumphs. And it takes no joy in hearing sin openly discussed. Love is never glad to hear bad news about another person. Love never says, well, finally, they have got what they deserved. Love is never happy to hear that a brother or sister has fallen into sin. Love does not enjoy passing along bad news. Chinese whispers, here we come, did you hear? Love rejoiceth not in iniquity. Now we're looking at the manner of this rejoicing in sin. The word that we have used here by Paul, 1 Corinthians 13 and 6, we find it 74 times in our English Bible, and so when we get a trium of some of those other occurrences, it'll give us an idea of what it is to not rejoice in iniquity, what he's talking about here. For example, a seasonal reference. In Matthew 2 and verse 10, the wise men, when they saw the star, they rejoiced. With exceeding great joy, that's the same word. You remember when the lost sheep out of the 100 were found, and we are told in Matthew 18, the verse 13, and if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the 99 which went not astray. So there's another example of this rejoicing. One not so obvious is in Matthew 27, the verse 29. Pilate's soldiers, when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head, and a reed in his right hand, and he bowed the knee before him, and mocked him, saying, Heal, King of the Jews, because that again is the word rejoiceth. 1 Corinthians 13 and 6 translated in a different fashion, the word heal there. So it's 
people who were really on their tiptoes, rejoicing or, in this case, reveling over the evil. And you will know that people do rejoice in their own sin. A host of ways in which people do this. And they fondly imagine we're getting away with this. We've heard them brag on the street corner, maybe in the workplace, and they're waiting for an audience. And when they get their audience, they stick out the chest and they say, hey, you'll never guess what I got up to this weekend. I did this, I did that, I did the other thing. That's one way to rejoice in iniquity, brag about that sin. And for anybody who thinks... Well, Christians would never do that. The example here of the Corinthians is worth considering, for they did this. In 1 Corinthians 5, the verse 1 to 6, we have the sin paraded in their midst that they are boasting about being puffed up by. Eternity magazine ran a feature about the American writer and journalist, Ernest Hemingway. And in the article, as he's talking his way through it. He says, you know, people can sin and get away with it. And this old idea, as he termed it, the old idea of the prudishness of sin and the Victorian fundamentalist viewpoint that there are consequences to sin. Ernest Hemingway said, it's all a bunch of baloney. And the article went on to say that Hemingway himself is living proof of the fact that you can sin and get away with it. Ironically, Ten years later to the very day that that article was written, 2nd of July, 1961, some three weeks short of a 62nd birthday, Hemingway took a double-barreled shotgun and blew himself apart. You rejoice over sin only so long. There are many people who think the thing to do is to rejoice in their sin because it kind of proves their masculinity or it gives them a kind of an invincibility and they see themselves bigger than God. Of course, there's another way in which people rejoice in iniquity and people do rejoice in someone else's sin. Not just their own, but someone else's. Because you know what they do when they are looking at someone else and seeing their sin? They kind of look at them and they say, Ah, I would never do that. And it gives them an opportunity on a plate to exercise the whole idea of, I am holier than thy. I haven't dropped down to where that person has gone, and soon they feel good about themselves. It justifies their own sin if somebody else is sinning more. And we have, of course, all of those regular revelations in the media. We've mentioned that newspapers sell copies by recounting in the goriest of details the tales of iniquity that radio, television, bulletins, programs carry information about the sins of the day. And when you tune into this, so-and-so left his wife, so-and-so was mugged, so-and-so was raped, so-and-so was murdered, so-and-so committed one of the crimes just mentioned, and we have corruption here and there and everywhere epidemic, endemic within man. How do we respond to all of this information? Unfortunately, we have a natural tendency to say, ah, tut, 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 there they go again. While we are, as one says, gluting in our sanctimonious shell. What we're really trying to do is get brownie points for ourselves. 
tap ourselves on the back, convince ourselves that we are holy because we don't do the things that other people are doing. It gives us a favorable standard like the Pharisee in the temple had. In Luke 18, when he stands and he prays thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. They are so worse than where I would ever be. That's actually rejoicing in iniquity when we are measuring ourselves against others. That closing comment in Romans chapter 1, the verse 32, is very pertinent, but it, it lambasts those who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in those that do them. Revelations. Then relationships within the home. One experienced pastor has said, I've known Christians who have divorced without scriptural grounds. Oftentimes, one partner, he says, will eventually realize after studying the Bible that the only biblical grounds for the divorce was fornication, adultery. But since there wasn't any, they are not biblically free to remarry. That partner then begins to hope that the other person will commit adultery. That happens more times, he said, than I'd like to talk about. They'll say to me, well, I don't know for sure if they have committed adultery, but I think they have. Then when they're sure about it, they'll call me on the phone. They'll excitedly say, listen, I've just found out that he's committing adultery. I'm free now, right? It's almost as if they have been praying, Lord, help him to commit adultery. You say, has that really happened? He said, yes, I've seen it so many times. I've seen people get a dying deep wish that their partner would commit adultery just so they'd have legitimate grounds to remarry. Achaeus, of rejoicing in the iniquity of somebody else. We can rejoice over evil by wishing someone would sin, by being glad that they do sin because it makes us look better, by just enjoying the fact that we sense a bit of invincibility in the middle of all of this. But we have to consider the malignancy about rejoicing in sin. Those who have this genuine love that Paul is underlining here cannot bring themselves to rejoice in iniquity because they know how it affronts God. And if iniquity affronts Him and they know what does, and if we love God, we'll not want Him to be affronted, and so we'll not want to go down this avenue. Exactly what David meant in Psalm 69 and verse 9 when he said, The reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. He's saying, When thy Lord art dishonored, I am in agony. The blasphemies of wicked men against thee are like spears lodging into my soul. Is that how we feel? Such is the situation in our country today that the blasphemy laws were struck off our statute book back in 2008, that a man today cannot be prevented 
from uttering all kinds of profane blasphemies and calumnies against the God of heaven. He can say what he wants. Nothing will ever happen where a Christian can be punished, even imprisoned, for perceived what they term homophobic comments. Sir Ian McKellen, who I used to like, only for his role as Gandalf. On the day when the blasphemy laws fell, read a poem, and I'll not even mention its title, because the content is so too-curlingly vile. But in the audience of celebrities and parliamentarians, kind of people who were ruling over us at a party organized by the National Secular Society. He read it in celebration. I can blaspheme all I want. Most vulgar. Hideously vile. But a true Christian cannot rejoice in sin that affronts God. Look around at what our society does for entertainment. Notice the sin that is being constantly promoted. Advertisements, even between the TV programs, they're not safe areas. Sin is so offensive to the purity and holiness of God that the sin of others really should make us run Cold inside, we rejoice not at iniquity, that is, because how it affronts God. It's also due to how it affects sinners, how it affects sinners as well. How can we rejoice? In this term that is used here by Paul is a very careful term. How can we rejoice over somebody's sin when we know the consequences that sin is going to bring? Sin has effects. We know that from studying God's Word. It has spiritual effects in our relationship with God. It affects it. When we live in that state of unconfessed sin, we forfeit blessing. It has physical effects, as we find in the whole catalogue of what God read out to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3, the verse 14 to 19, as we see in David's experience, Psalm 32, the verse 3 and 4. He says, when I kept silence... My bones waxed dulled through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. His life juices were drying up, happening to his blood, to the secretion of various glands in his body, the fluids that accommodate the muscles. We're maybe not operating properly here. And so David is saying... This is what happened to me. The Hebrew significance of the term moisture. Physical effects, spiritual effects, eternal effects. How many times have we read what God tells us through again Paul's pen in Romans 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin are death. So knowing all of this, how the sinner will suffer chastening and judgment, we cannot rejoice over somebody else's sin. That's why Paul was very keen to correct what was happening in Corinth. 
In 1 Corinthians 5, the verse 1 to 5, and you can compare that with 2 Thessalonians 3, the verse 5 and 6, where he says, the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Get away from the love of sinning to the love of Christ. He's saying, I want you to be characterized by this love. And he shows as well that that love is displayed by noting. Those who were sinning riotously and continuously and having no company with them. Love does not rejoice in sin. If the Church of Scotland was not already in dire streets and plumbing the depths of spiritual apostasy, then a decision they took in May of 2009 where they would accept and ordain their first openly homosexual minister. That was a tragic example of people rejoicing in sin. The General Assembly, they met the biggest Presbyterian church in Scotland. They voted 326 to 267. They would approve this man coming into ministry in a church in Aberdeen. It sparked, they said, civil war within the church. Protest petition collected 12,000 names, 400 ministers in that. One minister, he was all for it. He said, the church stands at a crossroads. There is a place for all in society. Nobody's denying that. What he's saying is, we don't judge people by their skin color or sexual orientation. We believe in love over hate. But what's Paul teaching us here? True love, true love does not tolerate evil. True love does not rejoice in sin. And people back then and since have been crying, it's brought shame on our church. And in Philippians 3 and verse 19, we have God's banner headline over much of what's going on in society today whose glory is in their shame. And so we have in 1 Corinthians 13 and 6 this mandate not to rejoice in iniquity. The maliciousness about rejoicing in sin. Do you know that this word extends to address the issue of gossip? Because love doesn't even recount evil things. I wonder how much of our conversation would be changed if we didn't gossip about the faults and didn't gossip about the sins of others. What would we do if we didn't have the paper to read or the internet to troll and dig up all the evil and the sin that is happening in the world all around us? And what would we do if we didn't discuss the failures and the faults and the sins of the people about us? What would we talk about? The subject is often missed. In discussion to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in the verse 6, rejoiceth not in iniquity. And yet this passage next to James chapter 3, it is launching the heaviest payloads in warheads in our New Testament against the sin of gossiping. Love rejoiceth not in iniquity. And if it doesn't rejoice in it, if it doesn't take pleasure in it, then it follows that it's not happy to hear it and it's not happy to pass it on. Some people say, I'm just telling the truth. And they've come with this big story. I'm just telling the truth. I'm just telling what, it ha- I'm just telling what I know here. Well, it doesn't mean whether it is the truth, whether you've heard it, that you have to say it. 
Since love does not rejoice in someone's evil, it doesn't go passing it around either. Why would we pass around something that offends God? Why would we pass around something that wounds and injures the person who did it? If we were loving to God, loving to that individual, we wouldn't be doing it. A country newspaper editor became tired of people always writing into his paper and saying, you don't report the news with enough honesty. You're too biased. You're always too kind. And such was the eagerness of the people writing in. Whenever they heard, the editor is responding to us. And he's announcing in the next edition of his paper, he's going to tell the whole truth about everybody and about everything, and they sold out that paper. But they weren't expecting what they read. Three sample articles. In that paper, number one, Dave Conkey died at his home. Last Friday evening, the editor looked, and there was a big funeral Sunday afternoon. The minister said it was a loss to the community, but I doubt it. The community is better off without him. The doctor said he died of a heart attack. Nonsense. Whiskey killed him. Another article in the Tell Everything, the Wednesday Literally Club met at the home of Mrs. Gadabout. The program stated they were going to study Shakespeare's playing, much ado about nothing. Well, they didn't. The lady who was assigned to present the paper had never read the play, and so they had no program. But they made up for it by gossiping about every member that wasn't there, and the whole afternoon was really like the play, much ado about nothing. Another article. In that paper went like this. Winifred Jones and Jim Smith were married Saturday at the Methodist Parsonage. The bride is a very ordinary girl who doesn't know anything more about cooking than a jackrabbit and never helped her mother three days in her whole life. She's not a beauty by any means and has a gait like a duck. The groom is an up-to-date loafer. He spends most of his time hanging around the pool hall. He's been living off his old folks at home all his life, and it's not worth shucks. It'll be a hard life for both of them. So much for the paper. The following letter was written by a woman who had decided not to lie when asked to give a recommendation for somebody who would work for her. Here was a recommendation. The bearer of this letter was in our employ for one month. We engaged her to do light housework, and she couldn't have done it any lighter. We found her extremely careful to break only our best dishes and glassware. She was neat about the house, always hiding the sweepings under the rug where they would not be seen. In serving meals, she exhibited good training by never putting her thumb in the soup when it was too hot and never spilled it except on our company. Her cooking was exceptional. In fact, we took daily exception to it. We shall always gratefully remember her stay with us. It was so short. Love does not parade everybody's evil. It hides those kind of things gently.
it does not rejoice in iniquity. Now we have a flip side, and in closing moments we'll deal with it today. What love does is, it rejoices not in iniquity, but it does rejoice in the truth. The psalmist pleaded in Psalm 86 and 11, Teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. And the word rejoiceth. The second time we have it in 1 Corinthians 13 and 6, it's a different word to the first time we have it. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth. Second time, different word, in the truth. What does this other word mean? It means to rejoice with. It means to take part in another's joy. It means to rejoice together, to congratulate, to sympathize. I like this definition, to sympathize in gladness. Let me give you a couple of other examples where it's used in the Bible. In Luke 1, 58, we have John the Baptist being born, and we're told her neighbors and her cousins to Elizabeth here heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. They sympathized in gladness, Rejoice together. We have the discovery of the old coin that was lost. And in Luke 15 and 9, And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Love rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Why does it rejoice in the truth? It understands. that God's design is the best design for life. They will pursue God's values. They will obey His commands because they're convinced that the truth that is found in the Lord, found in the Word of God, the truth alone, it can set us free from bondage to sin and destruction. They rejoice and are glad when the gospel is preached. They celebrate when people are converted turning from sin to the Savior. They rejoice when God is honored. That's their glory. They rejoice in the truth. And not only that, they rejoice in the truth when they see that truth evidenced in the lives of others. We have the apostle, and he's writing the third letter to John. And in verse 4 of that letter, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And so that loving person, what will they do? They will highlight good things and rejoice over those good things that they see in others. They will cheer others on. They will celebrate their victories. They will rejoice with those who do rejoice. And I tell you, that's often the opposite of what really happens. A Scottish minister was known for his love and for his encouragement of the people in the church and in the village in general. When that minister died, someone said, there is no one left to appreciate the triumphs of ordinary folks. That's what love does. It appreciates, it celebrates, it comes together, it joins together in celebration of the daily triumphs of ordinary folks. Love cheers others on. Tell me, are you doing that in life? How's your love life in accord with 1 Corinthians chapter 13? How is it measuring up to the features we are examining here? Let's throw out a little test for our scorecard as we close. It will tell us much. When we first meet someone, do we notice their flaws or appreciate their strengths? 
Do we regularly confess our own sins before God? Or do we feel we don't need to do that because I'm feeling rather self-righteous in comparison with others right now? When somebody does something that is done well, do we highlight that, spotlight that, encourage them, say wonderful things about them, or do we look for areas where they could have done even better? And instead of celebrating with them, we're ending up criticizing them. Do we give courage to? That's what encouragement is all about. Giving courage to others, or do we siphon courage from them and therefore discourage them? I end where we always try to end. We need to be like Jesus. He was the perfect example in all of this. Whenever we read 1 Corinthians 13 and 6, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. I'm thinking. The passage we read in Luke 7, the woman with the alabaster box. Simon the Pharisee. You'd have thought he'd have known who it is. You would think he wouldn't be celebrating with her anything at all. Do you know what? The Lord recorded that incident three times in the gospel so that we wouldn't miss it. In Matthew 26, 7 to 13, in Mark 14, 3 to 9, in Luke 7, 37 to 50. And in that final passage in Luke 7 that we read, he expanded upon it all. And he's saying, those who are forgiven much, they will love much. Her sins, which were many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And that summarizes the whole thing and brings us right back into the center of 1 Corinthians 13 and 6, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth to be like Jesus.